Clothes, the podcast named after what you do while listening to podcasts. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Not Mormons. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, that is no longer. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day, Latter-day Saints. Saints. <laughs> All right, I'm Miles. Maddie. Megan. Vivian. This is our very first episode of Folding Clothes, and we're just going to go ahead and get right into it. The commonality is, we, we, we seem to dwell more on our differences in our commonality. Everyone should be able to live the life they want, like everyone else. You know, that again, be given the rights that everyone else does. They feel the spirit. We all feel the spirit. Mm-hmm. We want to feel the spirit. We want to be happy. I would like to hear your personal stance on the act of homosexuality. Not the people, but the act itself. Well, I think that's a decision they'll have to make. Uh, But are we free to make any decision we want and have no consequences? The doctrine I have faith in, Mm -hmm. I I, I firmly believe there's a a purpose to life. There's a purpose for the family. I don't think a lot of members of the church have the right idea. I think the church has the right idea. But nowhere in the teachings of Christ does it teach you to treat somebody with anything but respect, to treat them with anything but as a child of God. Say that one of the youth that you worked with came out to you. What would be your plan of action? How would you respond to that? I would give them support, love, validate, tell them that um, I will stand by them. I will ask them what they need. You know, everyone sees this side of the Mormon church, but then there's also this whole other side of young people who are quite accepting. I think more like the, the, the misunderstandings on both sides. Yeah. Um, the people involved. If you have this attraction, you must be, and they rattle off all sorts of political things. If you have these religious beliefs, you must be, and they rattle off all sorts of assigned bad motives because you have you because of one thing they immediately assign negative motives on both sides you have to realize that fear mixes in into the middle of all of mm-hmm. this and some of the reaction in one side of the community is fear and some reaction is fear in another side of the community and sometimes those issues are a little mixed together so those were the responses that we got back from people when we interviewed them about our topic today, which is LGBT people in the LDS church. Any initial thoughts on that, guys? Um, It's interesting that everyone that you interviewed with was generally accepting or, you know, their opinions seem to be there are some differences, but they're resolvable. I found that was an interesting theme for everyone that was there. Uh, Did you encounter anyone that wasn't open to your questions? Yeah, we did. Yeah. Um, some of them were missionaries, which we found out partway through were not allowed to be interviewed. And so an- one missionary who wasn't clear on the rules came later to us and said, hey, can you not use my recording? And we said, I'm so sorry. And we deleted it. Um, so it is it is off the record. But there was only one man I can remember who, who said he was a, a man with his family who said that he wasn't interested. By and large, everyone was willing to talk about it, which was very interesting. And as a matter of fact, um, I don't know if you heard in that recording, there was a man talking um, and his wife, they were both talking to us. And um, 
when a security guard came and asked us to leave Temple Square because we didn't go through the right pathways to interview people, um, they actually chased after us and wanted to say more things about it and had some interesting things to say. So let me play that real quick. Our church leaders, the prophets, they mm -hmm. have reached out um, to the community. Mm. And as members, we should be doing the same. Mm. The, the church has made it clear that they might not agree, but they love. I thought that was so interesting. Um, she wanted to make a couple points with us that I would interpret to mean she wanted to say that the church was doing everything they could for these people and that it's only the members who are failing in their positions. And that actually had a lot of contrast with uh, an active LDS member who was gay. I have a great interview clip from him that he he spoke about. In your perspective, do you feel accepted within the Mormon church, the LDS church? I feel accepted within my own congregation. I do not feel accepted in the church overall with their policies. And I see a big dichotomy in the policies of the church and the way it's implemented individually in wards. Do you believe that the interpretation of the doctrine is correct as is on this topic or that there should there's more to be revealed or I think that there's it? a lot more to be revealed and I've told my bishop that when they start allowing married gay men to go into the temple I want to be first in that line currently I'm sort of self-exiled I just said okay mm. so I won't take the sacrament and I'm not going to make a big deal in the ward but just know I expect that at some point the church will disavow their stance on LGBT just like they did on previous issues that were, you know, big deal, and um, and I think that we need to be patient and loving towards our church leaders on this issue. Mm. But I do think that they will disavow their stance on this at some point. They even when they disavowed the stance on the blacks, they never really apologized for the for the hurt or the yes. problems that they caused. So I'm, and we've been told by Elder Oaks they're not going to apologize. So I'm not expecting an apology. But when they disavow, I think they're going to say we are doing course correction, and I hope that it happens sooner than later. Do you think that will change when leaders of the church listen more? I think that no. I don't. I, the reason I don't like that question is because the reverse of that question would indicate it would change if they listened more. Mm. And I don't think that's the problem. I think that this is a slow progression. is based on the age of the general authorities. It's based on long-standing practices i think that at some point when they are asking the questions the right way they will come to mm. the same realization that i came to when i stopped started asking the right way mm. because i spent 60 years of my life praying not to be gay and i finally realized that was god had answered that question he was probably sick of me asking that question yeah that it was a different question of how do i live my life within these parameters in a way that's pleasing to god and brings me peace and instead we're, we're praying for the wrong thing and i actually think the brethren may be praying for the wrong thing mm. maddie right off the bat what what do you think were some of the differences between those those two interview clips we just showed of the family the mother who came in caught us after we got kicked out and the gay man who's an active member what are, what are the differences in what you see there I mean obviously it's the perception of what our leaders are doing and what steps they're taking um, to address this issue the mom of the family she seemed to believe that they were doing everything in the power in their power 
and the man you interviewed, he really believed that our leaders aren't asking the right questions yet, but that there is much more potential. So let's go around real quick and just talk about our connections with this issue. Vivian, do you want to start introducing yourself and your connection? Okay. Hello, my name is Vivian Bentley. I was born and raised in Salt Lake City. I'm not a member of the LDS Church, but I've been influenced by it because I was raised here in Utah. Hi, my name's Megan, uh, born and raised in Utah, and very similar to Vivian, I'm not LDS, but I was influenced by the church and church ideas growing up. Um, what else? And I am straight, I think. I am Maddie. I am a member of the church, have been a member my whole life, and my other connection to this topic is that I am bisexual. And I'm Miles. I'm also a member of a church, lifelong member. I've served a mission, and um, I'm mostly straight. Those are our connections to this topic. None of us know everything about this topic, but all of us can contribute greatly to this conversation. And just to start off, I want to I wanna talk about how this podcast is not about making stances to alienate people. This is about helping everyone feel okay listening to these this discussion, but in some cases making you uncomfortable enough to perhaps reconsider some of the misconceptions that could enlarge your vision on this. Does everyone think that's accurate? Yeah. Yes. I would agree. Cool. Great. I'd like to go quickly over something someone that we interviewed earlier today said he is a convert to the church so he has only been a member for about four years and he had some very interesting things to say about this topic. Uh, one of my favorite sayings uh, comes from my high school drama quote uh, teacher who's one of my favorite people in the world, Cheryl Church, and uh, she told me one time, she said, uh, love is the answer and the question is irrelevant. You know, we always talk about being uh, sun, uh, Sunday only Latter-day Saints, and I think if we uh, aren't committed to making LGBTQ members feel more um, loved uh, and approached, and not just, um, you know, not just allowed to be here, but accepted, you know, uh, if we don't really strive for that, then we are in essence falling into that category of, of Sunday Latter-day Saints. What has changed in how you think about LGBT people since you were baptized? You're a convert, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a convert. I'm a convert about, about four years now. Uh, and, and I grew up in a small town, very small town, Utah. Uh, I grew up in little place called Hatch, Southern Utah. I went to school in Panguitch and, um, you know, it's very cut and dry there. It's a very small town, conservative, you know, run of the mill. As I've been baptized, you know, I've started to see things a lot less cut and dry. You know, I still obviously believe in all the doctrine and I do have a testimony that, you know, uh, marriage between a man and a woman is sacred, you know, and that it does uh, provide for amazing household and structures to rear children in. But I think also... I've just had experience with different people, both in and outside the church. Uh, for example, I have an aunt who uh, is out east. You know, we went to visit her this last Christmas, and she, you know, very smart woman. She teaches, you know, at, at, a, at a Connecticut college. She has, like, two PhDs, really smart woman. And, you know, she has a partner who is a woman, and they have two beautiful adoptive baby girls. And 
you know, as much as I do have that testimony of uh, marriage between a man and a woman wearing up amazing uh, children and having that amazing structure, I have not felt anything but absolute love and commitment, you know, from those two in raising those baby girls. And I have no doubts whatsoever that that's going to be a great environment for those two girls, you know. So I think just experiences that I've, I've had since being baptized have just um, kind of opened my eyes to there being that kind of love that I thought, you know, only existed between a man and a woman that uh, can be found in other sources as well. So it's definitely prompted me to a lot of late night uh, thinking session and searching doctrine for sure. So that was um, our good friend Donnie. He, I think, represents what a lot of members of the church feel, how there has been a great unease about the idea of casting out LGBT members altogether. And I think there's a great... Um, strain in some people's hearts to have to as part of their religious perspectives cast out these people but at the same time want so deeply to love them and i think that increases the closer you are to people who have been directly influenced by this topic and we're going to get way into that um, coming up but um, to start we're just going to go around and talk about some perspectives on this. I'll start by talking about the historical background to this. And then after that, Megan's going to follow up talking about the mental health effects that come along with this topic. Vivian's going to talk about trans people in the church and how the structure of the church influences these topics. And then Maddie's going to talk about bisexuality in the church and how little that's talked about and middle way Mormonism. So to begin, um, I'll have a brief history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That's the full name of the church, and we'll try our best to use that as that's what has been asked. But please do forgive us if we slip up. This history is not comprehensive. It's just intended to give you a taste to get going on this topic. And I have to define some buzz terms before we really get going. Baptism is essential for salvation in Mormon beliefs, and it's the way that someone joins the church. Missionary service is a voluntary service opportunity that lasts either 18 or 24 months, depending on your gender, and it has a lot of honor accompanied with it. Eternal marriage in the temple is essential to progress to the highest degree of glory in the next life, according to Mormon beliefs. The church never encourages anything lower than that. The priesthood is a God-given power held by worthy men of the church, and for all of these things, the LDS Church believes that um, anything that is essential can be completed through proxy ordinances so that all will be able to receive salvation even if they miss out on opportunities. And that will play a bit of a role as we talk about this topic. So let's start with the story of the church with Joseph Smith's account. It will be told as Joseph Smith portrayed it, and we won't really be getting into the disputed points of his account. In spring 1820, there was a young boy who was confused about what was taught in the very actively religious area that he lived in. That time wasn't easy for him, and he said, During this time of great excitement, my mind was called up to serious reflection and great uneasiness. And at one point, he almost joined the Methodist church, but didn't feel right going and didn't go through with it. And... While he thought about this and was laboring under these extreme difficulties, he said, he read a Bible verse that said, If any of you lack wisdom, 
let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. He decided to pray in the woods by himself, and when he did, he received a great vision from God the Father and his son Jesus Christ, and that spurred an immense a number of revelations that eventually led to the founding of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Joseph Smith taught that he was called as the new prophet to bring about the restoration of the true Church of Jesus Christ that had been lost soon after the death of Christ. He was led by an angel to an ancient American record and he translated it and that book is known as the Book of Mormon and it became an additional book of scripture to the Bible. It was used as a figurative keystone in the organization of the church, and many people found a lot of comfort in the teachings of that book. Church prosecution later on became increasingly intense. There was a famous extermination order that came from Missouri, and um, that involved a command from the government to kill or remove all members of that church. There was a lot of political things that were involved in that situation but it became increasingly intense and led to the death of Joseph Smith, who was succeeded by Brigham Young. Brigham Young led the church to Utah after more issues and there was more violence in Utah, but regardless, many decades later, Utah still remains to be a central location for the church and the state population is over 60% LDS today. A big topic for many people for the LDS church is about race and the priesthood. In 1852, Brigham Young announced that blacks couldn't have the priesthood or receive temple blessings, which was different than Joseph Smith's practice. Interestingly enough, this came with a promise that one day people of color would be able to enter the temple and hold the priesthood again. There have been many justifications proposed for this action, but no explanation is officially accepted by the church today. But regardless, several leaders put forward many explanations for this ban that involved deep racism. One prophet in 1949, along with his counselors, issued the following statement. The position of the church regarding the Negro may be understood when another doctrine of the church is kept in mind, namely that the conduct of spirits in the premortal existence has some determining effect upon these conditions and circumstances under which these spirits take on mortality. A lot of that quote shows that it was really believed that people of color deserved less because they acted poorly in their previous life. In 1966, Bruce R. McConkie said in his book, Mormon Doctrine, those who were less valiant in the pre-existence and who thereby had certain spiritual restrictions imposed upon them during mortality are known to us as the Negroes. Such spirits are sent to earth through the lineage of Cain, the mark put upon him for his rebellion against God and his murder of Abel being a black skin. These things are shocking and hurtful. However, small changes were made bit by bit in positive directions very slowly though. At least one prophet at one point prayed to know if he should lift the ban, and he claimed that he was not impressed to remove that ban. However, a lot of questions started coming from Brazil as for why people of mixed ancestry who helped pay for the temple that was being built there and helped build it weren't allowed to enter it. And this caused a lot of strain within people about the validity of this ban. Eventually, Spencer Kimball, a prophet of the church, prayed to receive what is now known as a huge revelation in June 1978. Gordon B. Hinckley, then an apostle, said about this event, There was a hallowed and sanctified atmosphere in the room. 
For me, it felt as if a conduit opened between the heavenly throne and the kneeling, pleading prophet of God who was joined by his brethren. Not one of us who was present on that occasion was ever quite the same after that, nor has the church been quite the same. Bruce R. McConkie retracted what he had said without hesitation afterwards. He said, Forget everything that I have said, or what President Brigham Young or President George Q. Cannon or whomsoever has said in days past that is contrary to the present revelation. We spoke with a limited understanding and without the light and knowledge that now has come into the world. Reflecting on his own experience, Kimball, the leader of the revelation, said, I was very humble. I was searching for this. I wanted to be sure. I had a great deal to fight, myself largely because I had grown up with this thought that Negroes should not have the priesthood and I was prepared to go all the rest of my life until my death and fight for it and defend it as it was. And that almost leads you to feel like there is a decent amount of cultural perception going on here and that there were several cultural influences in this factor. The very man who talked about these, uh, this revelation admitted that himself he was not impartial in this situation. Nearly all members felt rejoicing or great relief with this revelation and it was a day that many church members remember clearly. It's one of those things that people are like, where were you when the revelation came out? That totally happens. Even though members, many members of color had felt burdened by the revelation, many believed that it was going to come and weren't worried about it before then. There were members of color who always just looked forward to this day and didn't really worry about it till then. There was one woman specifically, Raina Williams, a Jamaican-born woman who moved to England and chose to be baptized in 1971. So that would be how many years? Oh, seven. That would be seven years before the revelation removing this ban came out. She said, One of the problems we had is people could not accept why we couldn't hold the priesthood. We just had to have faith that one day it would happen. That is something special to me. We always take the kids down to a picnic down at the grounds of the temple. One day when I was there, I had the spirit whisper, you'll go inside one day. When the revelation was given, the phone was just packed with calls. It was with tears over the phone when the news came. It was as if Heavenly Father said, you can go in there now. Listening to that account and other things that she said during that interview, you are kind of shocked to hear that she wasn't really frustrated about this ban. And I think some people reading that want her to be more aggravated by what had happened. But for her, she felt perfectly safe in this congregation and felt really well accepted. The church since these bans has done a complete 180. And things have happened that people of older generations would have never guessed. For example, I will show you a quote that was given by one of the leaders of the NAACP, Reverend Amos Brown, about the current prophet. He said, He's a brother from another mother, another faith, tradition, and another race, who would lock arms against racism, homophobia, anti-Semitism, and xenophobia that divide the human family. The complete change from the beginning to end is incredible and really highlights the fluidity on this topic, and we'll go more into that in a little bit. So historian D. Michael Quinn stated that from his research, he saw that many, many homosexual couples were actually pretty well accepted into Mormon communities. The church never has accepted homosexuality, but there was almost a leniency up until the 50s when there was a pretty conservative shift in the LDS church. That was his claim, and a lot of this historian's findings have been heavily disputed, especially by church historians, but most religious historians in general accept at least the concept that the church 
expected increase in harshness against this topic in the 50s. And to back this claim up, in 1946, a patriarch of the church named Joseph Fielding Smith, this is a different guy than the prophet, he voluntarily stepped down after only four years of service for having at least three homosexual affairs, but was never formally disciplined, and he reported being treated with much compassion after the event, which may be different than something we see today. After the sharp conservative shift began occurring in the church, the topic was much more heavily pursued. A discourse given in 1976 by Boyd K. Packer was distributed in a pamphlet called To Young Men Only. And one part talked about a personal experience that he had where a missionary came to talk to him about his mission companion who had approached him sexually. I hit my companion. I floored him, he said. After learning a little more, my response was, well, thanks. Someone had to do it, and it wouldn't be well for a general authority to solve the problem that way. I am not recommending that course to you, but I am not omitting it. You must protect yourself. Later in that talk, one of the first mentions of transgender people in all doctrine is stated. From a pre-mortal life, we are directed into a physical body. There is no mismatching of bodies and spirits. Boys are to become men, masculine, manly men, ultimately to become husbands and fathers. A lot of these things, even to very faithful members today seem a little bit difficult to hear where this pamphlet nearly encouraged violence towards homosexuals and commanded all men to be heavily masculine, which is just not the case for some people, even if they do feel like a man. I know in my case, I feel like a man, but I don't, <laughs> I'm not very masculine and that's okay for me. So this pamphlet was distributed until 2016, but it had somewhat significantly faded from use by then. Since then, the church has quietly removed the talk from their website. Since Packer's pamphlet, nearly all mentions of gender orientation have been mentioned as the root cause of homosexuality, and it's rarely been considered as, it's, as a separate topic from homosexuality. So much of the topics discussed from here on out are actually from an excellent article by Bryce Cook, and he's a founding member of Arizona LDS LGBT Friends and Family Group. It is truly an excellent article and I would encourage everyone to read it. It can be found at mormonlgbtquestions.com and in his article it explains that by the 70s psychologists admitted that there was no basis in calling homosexuality a disorder. Spencer Kimball, the same man who did the 180 turn on blacks in the priesthood, fought hard against homosexuality. A direct quote from the article says, Kimball described homosexuality and homosexuals using terms such as ugly, repugnant, ever-deepening degeneracy, evil, pervert, deviant, and weaklings. He taught that it was a spiritual disease that could be cured, and to those who felt otherwise, he responded, How can you say the door cannot be opened until your knuckles are bloody, till your head is bruised, till your muscles are sore? It can be done. I bring this up mostly to highlight the differences in many of the current narratives on this topic. For example, the Apostle Elder Ballard said, Even though individuals do not choose to have such attractions, they do choose how to respond to them. And as another example, statements such as this 1977 statement, Homosexuality would not occur where there is a normal, loving father and son relationship, have been replaced by, Don't blame yourself for your child's same-sex attraction. This is no one's fault. Blame is neither necessary nor helpful. Though the church has at some points never passed an opportunity to speak out against homosexuality, they certainly have become much, much more sensitive on this topic. In 
1995, the church published a document called The Family, A Proclamation to the World that clearly stated that marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God and gender is an essential characteristic of human identity before, during, and after life on earth. This was a guiding document when the church became a huge million-dollar supporter of Prop 8 in California, which sought to define marriage as only between a man and a woman. The proposition was later overturned by courts, and most admit that this probably did more to hurt the church than to help, in any sense. During all of this, members that had homosexual feelings were at some points encouraged to find a partner of the opposite gender and marry them in the temple. This was followed by a wave of broken marriages that devastated families. However, many LGBT members still see this as the best solution and choose such a path to be married in the temple quite willingly, without any encouragement. Regardless, the church has begun to teach celibacy for those who are LGBT in the church, which remains as the recommended course of action for LGBT members today. Many positive steps were taken after Prop 8, including a very accepting website called mormonsandgays.org. The church stood up for legislation to protect LGBT housing and employment rights and to protect them against violence. The church even sometimes lobbied against conservative Utah legislators, including lobbying for an LGBT non-discrimination bill in Utah that failed six times but passed on the seventh try. Elder Christofferson, who himself has a gay brother, clarified in 2015 that members could publicly advocate for gay marriage and maintain their membership as long as they didn't attack the church. So there were several shifts from Prop 8 that made many members start feeling like there was a push to start accepting these people more. However, Bryce Cook, the author of the article mentioned earlier, spoke of a major setback for church leaders when the Supreme Court came out with their decision on gay marriage. The church began to draw some harder lines from their trend of greater compassion. And this was led by a statement saying, The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints acknowledges that same-sex marriages are now legal in the United States. The court's decision does not alter the Lord's doctrine. While showing respect for those who think differently, the church will continue to teach and promote marriage between a man and a woman as a central part of our doctrine and practice. Additionally, not long after, the church issued a policy that was unintentionally released to the public that marked homosexual activity as apostate, basically labeling them as having removed themselves from God altogether, and implemented a baptismal ban and mission service limit for children of homosexual couples. Many struggled with this policy. One source said that at least a thousand members removed their membership records in protest of this policy. The church has since removed its previous policy. With that, they stated, While we cannot change the Lord's doctrine, we want our members and our policies to be considerate of those struggling with the challenges of mortality. They reiterated that although homosexuality in any form was against the Lord's commandments, they will treat it as they do heterosexual misconduct. The same day that this announcement was released, a discourse given in the semi-annual worldwide broadcast of the church called General Conference, a hugely significant event to members of the church, included a talk by Elder Anderson who said nearly the only comment about homosexuality during the entirety of the 10 hours of the conference. There are so many, young and old, who are loyal and true to the gospel of Jesus Christ, even though their own current experience does not fit neatly inside the family proclamation. 
One friend of nearly 20 years is not married because of same-sex attraction. He has remained true to his temple covenants. He recently said to me, I can sympathize with those in my situation who choose not to keep the law of chastity in the world in which we live. But didn't Christ ask us to be not of this world? The laws of man often move outside the boundaries set by the laws of God. For those desiring to please God, faith, patience, and diligence are surely needed. Some had a difficult time with the deep brevity of the sympathy towards those who are expected to never act on sexual desire throughout all of their lives. For some, the shortness of the comment did not reflect the church's comment earlier that day of wanting our members and our policies to be considerate of those struggling with the challenges of mortality. However, some members found this to be a simple restatement of the proclamation to the family. They found comfort in the concept that no matter what the world believes, the Lord's laws as they know them would not change. Not long after, Elder Oaks, who has often spoke out quite directly against homosexuality, said in a devotional, he referred to the increasing frequency and power of the culture and phenomenon of lesbian, gay, and transgender lifestyles and values, and referred to this as part of a culture of evil and personal wickedness. Despite these things, Utah itself has become quite the hub of LGBT support, with one report from 2018 data concluding Utah is now more supportive of non-discrimination of LGBT people than 47 other states, and it is actually tied for the number two spot in the nation. There are several similarities between the church's movement on LGBT people and its treatment of blacks in the priesthood, but that includes a lot of differences as well. Both of them include a gradual progression to make more sensitive language. Both of them seem to be significantly influenced by the change in leadership, but there are some key differences that persist. People aren't born a different race than their parents, but this is the case for LGBT people's orientations of sexuality and gender causing a different sort of influence on these communities. No leader has ever said that in the future, LGBT people will be able to marry in the temple, whereas that was said for people of color. If this change were to happen of allowing LGBT people to be married in the temple, it would be a much bigger change doctrinally than the removal of the priesthood ban from people of color. However, in both cases, there exists a group of people where they look with hope to the future for the day that they will feel equal to others. I couldn't help but think of the man that we interviewed at the beginning when I thought about Raina Williams who talked about how she wasn't really influenced by the temple ban and just felt relief when the revelation came that she could go into the temple and that was all. There's a lot of that going on where people aren't necessarily ready to give up everything. They want to stick around. In closing, many members believe that the things being taught by the leaders are the word of God and do not have any desire to reject them, but they do have a growing sense of compassion towards LGBT people. And this increases as you are connected more to people who are struggling with this topic. Through all of this, some members are left wondering why a church quite focused on repentance does not apologize for the mistakes that its unperfect leaders have made. Members resort to several different religious and social explanations as to why the Lord would give some of his children deep desires that they could never act on. This includes the argument that a couple of the same gender cannot complement each other, nor provide the right tools for parenting. Both of those arguments have been 
completely refuted by every credible study that has dove into that topic. Other members claim that homosexuality is unnatural, which it is not since homosexuality is seen in many species throughout biology. In the end, the only doctrinal reason that I can see that two people of the same gender couldn't be married for eternity is that they can't produce children, even with perfect bodies, which is an important part of LDS belief for the next life. However, you have to ask, are we really going to be limited by biology in the next life? To put it in the words of my father, are we really going to have the same amount of creative power in the world to come? I say this only goes to show how little we actually know about this topic in the LDS church. If celibacy is truly required for some of God's children, where does this quote by Boyd K. Packer, the author of the pamphlet mentioned before, fit in? Romantic love is not only a part of life, but literally a dominating influence of it. It is deeply and significantly religious. There is no abundant life without it. Indeed, the highest degree of the celestial kingdom is unattainable in the absence of it. Have we really even learned much about God's plan for his LGBT children? Or do we have a much longer way to go? If you're liking this podcast and want more content from us, follow us at folding underscore clothes on Twitter. Okay, we've really been getting into the meat of things. Let's take a quick intermission and listen to a different opinion on a totally different topic from our friend Matt. Hello, my name is Matthew Abosamra, and today we will be talking about the validity of fish life. The fish is a lower being, not sentient, not feeling, and doesn't provide the earth anything at all. A fish is not as grand as a cat, or a cow, or a sock. A fish would never buy its child a new pair of shoes, or heal it in any way. When Jesus Christ walked the motherlands, he cloned fish for his people and fed them. Would Jesus clone a cat? Would Jesus clone a cactus? Would Jesus clone Ruth Bader Ginsburg? I don't think so. Do you? So next time you see a fish, grab the nearest large object you have and beat it to death with your angry human might, and enjoy your dinner. Thanks to Matt for those insightful words. Now back to the show. Well, I guess it is my turn to speak. Yeah, it is your turn. (laughs) So I had an awesome interview with my friend Rebecca, who I met today, and let's listen to that now. Well, hello, Rebecca. Hi. Do you go by Rebecca or Becca? Both. Okay. No preference. Okay. Um, So... I guess the first question I have for you is, what do you identify as? Okay, that's actually a really good question. Yes. (laughs) Um, I guess I would, I generally introduce myself as gay or queer, depending on who I'm talking to, because to some, that's an offensive term, and then to some, it's more Mm. accepted within the community. It just depends on who you're talking to. When did you know? That's a good question. Um, It's kind of been like a seven-year journey, to be honest. Uh, Summer... Right after high school, my best friend, one of my best friends came out to me 
And looking back, I can remember a lot of like aha moments when I can see now that pointed towards my sexuality, but I hadn't really had the opportunity or the courage to think about it yet. I remember distinctly that I had moments or feelings about girls and I'd shut them down. I was like, that's Satan tempting you. So I never acknowledged that it was possibly even my own thought. It was like, no, this is planted in you by Satan. So that's, I've come a long way. It's been good. (laughs) But my friend and I ended up dating for a super short time. And then the relationship was forced to an end by well-meaning parents. So at that time, that experience really solidified for me that feeling of shame and kind of an aggressive refusal to accept myself because of how emotionally traumatic it was for me at the time. So um, as the years went on, I went on dates with lots of different guys and they were really amazing guys, you know. And so I didn't really understand why I couldn't make the connection that I wanted to with them. I remember even just like holding hands and cuddling no matter how comfortable I was with them kind of felt like (laughs) a personal space violation that I was just like, I don't know. I was never quite comfortable with it. There was a few times that I acknowledged to myself that I was possibly bi, but it was always like, but that's fine because I can just ignore half of it and pretend that I only like guys and it'll be fine, you know. So last year, end of June, kind of beginning of July was when things started coming to a head, I would say. I was getting really upset by the fact that I couldn't find somebody that I even wanted to really have an emotional connection with. And I was chatting with my sister about it and she just kind of said, have you thought about you might be gay? (laughs) And within minutes, um, I had more acceptance than I'd had in the past seven years for that for myself. So the beginning of the conversation, I felt very hopeful and excited about it. But by the end, it had basically, I had decided, you know, well, I'll just stay closeted here. And then when I leave on my internship, I'll try to figure it out, which now having gone on my internship, there was not time there. (laughs) So I'm glad it happened a different way for me. So once I acknowledged it, it really started to consume most of my thoughts. And I was living at home at the time and I'm pretty sure my parents could tell something was up. And so I ended up coming home one day from work and when it was just kind of feeling too overwhelming and more or less sprung it on them. (laughs) So I knew how they were gonna take it and it went about as I expected that they loved me, but they were very upset and hurt. So, um, but I'm very lucky that me and my parents had a good relationship going into it. And so both sides really fought to keep that relationship strong even after I came out to them so and I can say that a year now later that our relationship is stronger than it ever was before and that how they um, acknowledge it is light and like night and day different with me so really things have come a long way but I know that not all people are that lucky and I have a lot of friends are in the closet right now because they know that if they came out to their friends and family that they would be cut off from those relationships. And I have other friends that are out and have already had that separation happen or are trying to fight for those relationships. So I feel very lucky, but none of us handled it perfectly. But overall, overall, I see the experience is really positive. And despite how difficult it was, I can see, and I've come out to a lot of my friends and coworkers, but I'm not finished yet. You know, there's still people that don't know and that I know aren't ready to hear it yet and there's some that I'm not ready to let go of yet I guess and I know that that's what it'll mean when I do come out to them so you know no part of it's been easy the journey but it's definitely been worth it and um, for the first time in like 13 years I can say that you know I truly love myself and that's the most amazing feeling in the world so yeah wow that's kind of my journey (laughs) yeah that's awesome Um, I find it one thing I found interesting about what you said was that as soon as you had that first conversation with your sister, you immediately felt more accepting of what was happening. Yeah. I think having somebody else say it to me 
was affirming because something that's an experience that I've chatted with almost everyone, all my friends that have come out to me at different points, that they've had moments where they're like, am I faking this? Like, <laughs> is this all in my head or is this really that big of a deal? Do I need to acknowledge this? And so I think that for so long I had decided that it wasn't important enough that I needed to acknowledge it or that I refused to, that when someone brought it to me, it was like, oh, this is valid. Like I'm allowed to acknowledge this feeling and yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm glad that you had accepting people in your life to kind of explore that with. Mm -hmm. um, I've been very lucky. That seems really hard though. So I guess when you found out or started accepting it more and you were more conscious of your identity, uh, how did you ever try and fit into the mold and how did the Mormon church fit into this feeling? Um, I definitely felt a little bit of both like I fit in and a little bit like I was isolated because I definitely had a support system around me. I had supportive friends, really loving leaders. But when there's the voice in the back of your head telling you that there's a bad, like you're a bad person and I was a disappointment to God is kind of how I I felt. Um, I remember a leader at some point in my childhood telling us in a church lesson that when you sin, it makes Jesus cry. <laughs> so I remember growing up believing that Jesus was crying because of me. And so it was always this disembodied thought of like he cries because of something about me, but I couldn't acknowledge what that was. But appearing as the perfect Mormon was never really hard for me. My family definitely fit the mold. I followed what I was supposed to. I did what the leader said. Amongst my friend group, I was considered one of the more spiritual of the group. And so for a lot of my life, I felt like a fake in that way a little bit. But um, I definitely do appreciate that support system, having grown up and knowing that I had those people always there to support me. That's something I really value about the church. So, Did you feel like your identity ever impacted your relationship to God or your ability to get close to God? And, uh, you know, did this... You, were there, was there kind of a confluence with the church as an organization or as a collective of people who maybe influenced feelings of shame? Um, I definitely struggled trying to come to terms with who God was. Um, the idea that like, if God loves me and made me this way, made me love who I love, how could that be wrong? And so I must've been taught incorrectly, but then if they're teaching who God is incorrectly, then how can I trust what they teach me? I haven't been told I could like I've been told that I can't just cherry pick what I choose to believe and follow in the church. And so this was a fundamentally big thing to me. It wasn't something I could just ignore or choose to just. I had a lot of people that wanted me to just have enough faith to live the life they wanted on this earth. And then, you know, that idea that once we get to heaven, it'll all just work out. But there's too much that it impacts on my life here that I couldn't take that chance, I guess. Um, and so it always felt like my other option was that the church is right and God loves me, but he doesn't want me to live my life authentically as a gay person. And in that case, I honestly didn't want to worship that kind of God, any God that would make me this way and then deny me of the most basic need for love and connection. It just made no sense to me. And so there's still parts of the church that I believe or want to believe, but like something that is emotionally damaging for me right now to continue going. And so I choose not to. So you've left the church. Yes. Do you still well, have a relationship to God? Yeah. Um, let me go back to that. <laughs> I love the church. Because I guess there are times that I still identify as LDS just because of how deeply it impacts my life continuously to today. But I'm inactive at the very least, I would say. Do you feel like there's ever an opportunity for you to go back and be more active? Or is that off the table for you right now? 
Um, as of right now, it's pretty off the table. If ch big changes were made, that's something that I'd be comfortable with, but I don't see that kind of flexibility happening quite yet. There's still times that I go to support friends or family. Like this Sunday, I'm going to a cousin's welcome home from his mission. So I still value a lot of parts about the church and still want to support others in their continuous going. But like a weekly attendance of church isn't, isn't right for me right now. So, Did you ever find support within the church or through members of the church? And what form did this take? Um, I was never open to anyone in any of my wards. My very last bishop, I did end up telling, ended up coming out to him. Um, at the time, I had a calling in the Relief Society. I was a Relief Society president. And so <laughs> I kind of felt like that was confirmation that regardless of whatever was wrong with me at the time, that God was saying, I still trust you with this important calling, you know. But there was a lot of emotional weight that came with that in supporting the other girls in the ward and then also the constant um, working to make sure that people were staying or that we were trying to help people come back that had left, that was really hard for me because in my own mind, I was already kind of thinking about like, is this right for me? And then every week sitting down at a table and discussing with others, you know, who's thinking about leaving? And I was like, should I raise my hand? Like, <laughs> I know that's not what they're asking, but um, so that, that was a really hard calling for me. And there was one day, oh, I had, I've been thinking that I was going to just kind of slowly quietly slip away once the summer was over because that's when the they would release those sisters that had those jobs and then um have another group take their place and I would be moving out of the ward and so I thought you know it'll just be easier to wait until the end of the summer but then um things got emotionally more difficult going to church there was a lot of guilt that I felt in going to church and so there was one Sunday that I was supposed to be teaching a temple prep lesson, which is, you know, preparing to enter one of the temples and to make covenants. So I was supposed to be teaching that. And I remember feeling anxious all morning. And then when I walked into the church, I was just hit with a full-blown panic attack. So I was in the bathroom and I was just sobbing and hyperventilating. So I texted my roommate and she came, you know, tried to comfort me. And then she went and taught the lesson for me. She was a champion. <laughs> but um, while I was in there, I texted the bishop because I knew I couldn't, I couldn't keep doing what I was doing. And so I texted him and asked to meet with him. And so a couple minutes later, I'd come out to him. And honestly, he handled it really, really well. Um, I really appreciate how loving he was. And he told me, you know, they'd support me no matter what. He comforted me. He assured me that I was good enough. He told me no matter what I, what I chose, that God was there for me and that they were there for me. So I know that that conversation could have gone a lot of different ways, depending on what people's own biases or experiences are. So I feel really lucky that I got someone that was so understanding. So I ended up being released from that calling. So that experience was really positive. But then on the other hand, one of his counselors and that counselor's wife at one point made very homophobic and hurtful comments at one of our group activities, our word activities. And it like they had a discussion for probably half an hour that was really offensive. And I had just come out to my family a week or two before and didn't say anything. I just sat there. So I don't know. There's kind of the two sides, but mostly pretty much everyone I've come out to has been very supportive, at least to the best of their ability. And honestly, most of the people that I've come out to have exceeded my expectation of how loving and supportive they could be. So is there any primary way that you feel the church has let you down? Um, yeah, I feel like the mentality that, you know, the church is people are flawed, but the church itself is not flawed is a harmful concept because 
You can't excuse every action and comment that's said as an individual's flaw. When we see the same toxic patterns appearing all over the world in the congregations, it's not the individual anymore. What's being taught from the pulpit, for example, at General Conference, directly influences the actions of the members. And more than anything, right now we're teaching to love everyone, and I appreciate that um, sentiment, but a lot of times it seems to kind of come with a caveat of, you know, love the person, but, you know, if it's this situation or if you need to protect your family. Like, for example, growing up, I wasn't allowed to play with other kids that weren't LDS. And so I just think that that separation that happens in an attempt to have a boundary of safety is very damaging both to the members in the church and the people outside of it. By boundary of safety, what do you mean? Or what boundary, like, you can't socialize with certain people or you can't have certain ideas? Yeah, I think that idea of if this is different from me and I've told been told that this is wrong, then it's something that I, that I have to openly oppose and cannot be around. For example, I have friends that drink, but that is something that would not have been supported for me growing up. Like regardless of whether or not I drink, that would not have been acceptable because those people are going to influence me and my decisions. And so that idea that people can't be different because they might influence each other, I feel like is an idea that I was raised with, at least in my small community. So, Wow. And that seems to be connected to a lot of ideas about what identity is and how some church leaders think that having certain identities is really harmful. So kind of considering the alarming statistics around sexual minority health issues within religious institutions and often within the Mormon church, what do you think can be done to make these LGBT kind of members feel less isolated? Um, In the months just before and after I came out, I was happier in a lot of ways that I'd ever been, but was also experiencing anxiety and depression like I hadn't ever before to those levels. I think if the LGBTQ plus community had been something that was talked about at church while growing up, other than just, you know, we love them, but we don't approve of their lifestyle. And that was it. If I think everything would have been less jarring for me, maybe if I could have seen where I could fit in, if, if I knew there was other people like me, or if I knew I had leaders that would support me, you know, if I knew that I would have been accepted. Um, Also, Things like when we talk about our lessons, you know, we talk about that cookie cutter life that we want and expect every Mormon individual to have or family. If I could have been shown different options of what that could look like, I could have seen where I could have fit into that, I guess. And having healthy, normal conversations on the topic would have been the number one game changer. But I think that that's not likely to really happen anytime soon because we can't make it seem healthy or normal because that would mean it's okay. And that's clearly not what the current belief is. So, and for example, I dated someone who is agender, meaning they don't identify as either female or male. And they used they, them pronouns. And they ended up leaving the church because there was no room for someone like them there. Everything is split by gender, the classes, the parental roles, societal roles, church callings. And so I think a lot of what makes it difficult for people in the community to stay is wrapped up in traditions as well, not only the doctrine of the church itself. So... So you don't see that changing anytime soon? Or um, do you think there are quickly? <laughs> <laughs> I think that there's members that are changing and they're changing their own social circles in their churches in individual ways. But I don't see overarching changes happening in the church at the moment, I wouldn't say. Do you think the route towards change is individual members treating each other differently? Or do you think it should come down from church hierarchy? And what would be most effective? Um, 
I think that it would definitely be most effective if it came from the leaders of the church themselves, because I think there's a lot of people that do in their hearts want to support the community and want to be supportive of others, but they feel that they're betraying some part of the church in their actions. And so they're fearful that if they start to become more supportive in this way, that maybe, I don't know, it's like the idea of a gateway drug. That like, if I start to support this, then maybe my testimonies isn't as strong as I want it to be. Maybe I'll fall apart in other ways. I think there's a rigidity that a lot of members feel, and myself included, when I hadn't come out yet, that if I do everything just right, then I know it'll work out. But if I deviate from that, then something might go wrong. What personal step did you make to realize that maybe deviation wasn't something that was wrong? Um, I think the biggest thing was I started to meet a variety of different people. Once I got to college, I started meeting people with different opinions from me, different lifestyles from me, and I could see that they were happy and they were fulfilled and that they weren't missing out on blessings or something was inherently wrong with their life, that there was other options than what I'd been presented myself. Is there any one thing that you've wanted to express about the issue or thought about that no one's ever asked you? Um, I think the biggest thing that's been on my mind recently is that we all know that no person's the same and everyone's experience is different, but I don't think we can truly comprehend that. You know, there's no one right way to live your life or come out or express your sexuality or love others. And everyone needs room to grow into accepting themselves. And that might look different to different people. For example, sometimes you see a 15-year-old running through Walmart with a pride flag on their back like a cape. <laughs> and I'll admit that I've been guilty of this, of seeing that. And the first thought that pops into my head is like, that's a little much. Or, you know, you don't have to flaunt it. Or some people might feel like it's rubbing it in their face. But if you imagine that same teenager contemplating taking their own life because their family doesn't accept them, um, or because of bullying at school, and to be proud of them for showing that, um, that loud example of self-love, you know? A lot of people have spent years hating themselves, and whatever form of acceptance that self-acceptance might take, um, no matter how irritating it might seem at the moment, or how loud people might be shouting, you know, be happy that they're speaking up at all, because it's likely that they've spent years in painful silence. So the biggest thing is just accepting people in their process of figuring out what accepting their sexuality, you know, regardless of what it looks like. For example, I didn't come out as a youth, so I didn't get to do the fun pride flag stuff at Walmart. For me, it was creating a horrific amount of Pinterest boards from like, for example, one was called validating and it was just pictures of my celebrity crushes for when I would randomly try to convince myself that I was straight, which again, as I said, is an experience that most of my friends have experienced that at some point you're going to have one of those days when you're like, you know what, maybe I did. I'll make this all up. So um, I had that board uh, to add another one called Ho 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 Homo, which is filled with relatable gay humor. Like um, one of my favorites is those moments when straight people assume you're one of them and you feel like a gay secret agent. It says lesbianage. <laughs> Little things <laughs> like that that got me through just hard days of trying to accept myself and come out to myself. Um, so all I'm saying is, you know, let people figure themselves out without judgment. So kind of along that line, are you happier with the person you are today? A hundred percent. Yes. I truly like myself now, which I think isn't something that I was aware that I didn't feel before. Like, I feel like growing up, I was always like, yeah, I mean, every teenager hates themselves, right? It's fine. But getting into college and moving on, I think... 
I started to expect to see more acceptance in myself than I was truly feeling. And then once I came out, it was in the dumbest ways too. Like there'd be mornings I woke up and I looked in the mirror and I was like, I am beautiful. (laughs) Just weird, weird moments of self-acceptance, self-love, liking my personality, liking how I look and just being able to truly own the unique parts of me, I think. Wow. Yeah, I really agree with that. I think anyone who goes through a journey of trying to push some aspect of themselves away, they think, oh, it's not such a big thing. I can keep putting it off. And then once you stop putting it off, you realize, wow, that really informed every part of my life and how I was acting and what I felt about myself and about others. What advice would you give to young LGBTQ members of the church who are currently struggling? Um, The biggest thing for me that I had to accept was that no decision you're making now is set in stone. I think everything felt like such a big decision and earth-shattering, life-changing, but take that time to figure yourself out because there's no wrong way to live your life. And as cliche as it sounds, you know, you really have to follow your heart and decide what's next for you. So what next decision would make you feel the most you? Because as long as you're living in a way to try and do as much good as you can with the people around you, I can't believe that there's a God that wouldn't accept that as your best, you know. Uh, Figure out what it's going to take to feel like you and then love yourself. Also that you're not alone. I remember feeling like I was the only one in my ward that felt the way I did. But months later, after I had left and stopped doing that calling, one of my counselors from the Relief Society presidency actually came up on my Tinder account. (laughs) And we had a good (laughs) laugh about it and wished that we both would have um, known and supported each other. Um, My friends that are closeted are out in your congregations every week and are fighting quietly beside you. So, you know, you're not alone and you can do this. What I'm wondering is something you mentioned a lot earlier, too, is just how did you change the dynamic with your parents you mentioned that they've been very accepting about this and that maybe your relationship was better now or more open and honest I would definitely agree with that in the beginning I think everyone everyone has had their feelings and had things that they felt that they needed to share and I can understand that at that parent level that they they felt a responsibility to try and help me create that life that they had envisioned for me that they thought would bring me the most happiness. And so in the beginning, it was a lot of me having to sit back a little bit and hear their thoughts and hear their sadness, which was very hard for me. But knowing that it was coming from a loving place, that they really did have great intentions for me. And I think, again, having grown up in the church with them I could see where all this was coming from and so acknowledging that it was from a place of love and then having to inside make what was going to be my decision it was a lot of sitting down and having a lot of hard conversations but being open and trying to help them see my side and see my perspective and it definitely took time I've gotten to the point now where my parents will like sometimes crack gay jokes with me and I don't know I never thought that we would get to that point you know Hmm. yeah I really I really like that um there's this one quote that's like acceptance isn't isn't a line you cross it's a road you take and it can be hard I think for some people to understand when they've been raised in circumstances where you know they've heard all their life this certain messaging and it's even more harmful if you are that person in all your life you've heard this messaging that certain things are bad. Could I read one thing really fast? Yes, absolutely. And you can absolutely. choose if you want to put it in or not. <laughs> but um, 
So that same friend that planned the St. Louis trip for me, she also went to the Love Loud concert with me this summer, which is a concert benefiting LGBTQ plus groups and organizations. Um, And soon after, she had emailed me a blog post that she had written. And when I read it, I broke down. I've read it multiple times since and have cried multiple times. But I just wanted to read kind of a short excerpt from it because she's LDS herself. And it was titled, Can I be a part of the Church of Jesus Christ and still love and support those in the LGBTQ plus community? And she said, you can ask anyone in the Church of Jesus Christ and they'll say, yes, of course, we love everyone. True, but I'm not talking about the superficial, love the sinner, hate the sin kind of love. Not an I accept you, but not the gay part kind of support. I don't mean an I love you, but just because Jesus asked me to kind of relationship. I mean completely accepting someone for who they are. It is completely possible. I don't have to choose between my religion and being an ally. Truly being open-minded and accepting means to me that because I already know who I am and what I believe, I can fully accept someone who is different from me. Last week, I went to the Love Loud concert here in Utah, which is a blast and inspirational, and everyone should go next year. Just being there, surrounded by the LGBTQ community for over nine hours, taught me an incredible lesson about love. There was no body shaming, no judgment, no mocking, just love and acceptance for each other and themselves. I think we could all use a bit more of that in our lives. So just the wide range of responses I've had, I do have people in my life that make homophobic comments that don't know about me. And those moments are hurtful, but um, having friends and people in my life that support me in this way means so much more and trumps any of that hurt that anyone else has thrown my way. So truly being an ally is just accepting people for their differences and letting them grow and change how they need, so. Um, hello. So I'm Megan here again. And what I want to talk about is um, the issue of mental health and suicidality within the Mormon church among sexual minorities. It's something that's often not talked about, but can make up a big experience of both LGBT people within the U.S., especially religious youth and especially members of the Mormon church. So kind of to back this up with some statistics, the leading cause of death for kids in Utah between 11 to 17 is suicide. Suicide has also increased 141% since 2011 to 2015. The rate of self-harm is also up. The rate of emergency hospitalization has doubled in 2014 as compared to 2011. The suicide rate in Utah is 2.5 times the national average. Researchers aren't necessarily clear on why. For the 40 cases where data points of sexual orientation were known beforehand, about 15 of them were identified as sexual minorities, which considering that the average LGBTQ population is around 5 to 8 percent, this is like a pretty stark contrast. It's 15 out of 40. If you can imagine that, that's almost half of the suicide cases where we have this kind of data. So there definitely needs to be more research done on this and more data collection, but a lot of people have come forward with their stories of being a part of religious institutions and saying how they may feel ashamed, isolated. Feelings of anxiety and depression are increased. There's a need for every faith group, school, organization to look at how they engage in activities that promote social connection and close relationships. Quick question, Megan. How would you respond to someone who said that it is just a a local phenomenon that people who are LGBT commit suicide more often and that it doesn't have anything to do with the church. 
That's a very good question, at least for the research that I've looked into. There's actually a trend that's been found with LGBTQ youth where religious youth that identify as cisgender and don't have a sexual orientation other than heterosexual actually find close social connection within their relationships within the church. Um, Religious institutions can be a very protective factor for young people against suicide and self-harm. But for those who are LGBT, um, all the major studies on religion and suicide show that this trend is inversed, actually, that it increases feelings of suicidality. It increases a lack of connection to their religious faith and their institutions and to the people within those institutions. So it's been natural now for researchers to ask, well, is there any influence of the church's policy and the hierarchy around the church to people feeling isolated? And this might not necessarily be a question of individual members within the church or individual wards. It could be looking at the influence of church policies. Another major study actually about the Mormon church specifically showed that 60% of LGBT youth who regularly attended church sermons had symptoms of PTSD. That is crazy. Yeah. I mean, PTSD in general is usually more associated with military action. And to think that the magnitude of abuse, or at least feelings of separation and disconnect, would be to like a active combat level is crazy. Yeah. Um, especially when you know, you're being told the person who you are is not worthy, that can feel like an attack and it can feel like you're dying because the very core of your being is being called into question. You know, are you worthy as a person? What is the next course of action? How will you ever be happy if you can't be happy with who you are and you'll always be stuck being this way? That causes a lot of anxiety and PTSD is common not necessarily only on the war zone too. It's it's common in abusive relationships, whether they're emotional or physical. This research goes in line with exactly what our interviewee said, just about having a panic attack when entering church and just when people are in the church, like she felt like she had to leave. I really agree with that. It becomes really sad when you consider like church is supposed to be a place where you feel maybe the safest, you know, and you feel the closest in your connection to others and the natural world and to God, and to think that some people are barred from having that or feel like they can't have that because they are tolerated and not necessarily accepted. Even that difference between, okay, we'll we'll allow you in our space, but you're not necessarily a part of it can be incredibly detrimental. Just one thing that I'd like to mention real quick is I think in general, people with PTSD oftentimes aren't believed and like Megan was sort of getting at that's making the situation so much worse in the case of LGBTQ people because they're already torn down so much already questioned so much people might think that they're overreacting and really I think that the interviews that we're seeing today especially the one um, with Becca show that These people really are sure about themselves and their life experiences. I mean, we all go through periods of doubts, but they've been dealing with all of these issues constantly because this is who they are. So you can't really question their experiences. Yeah, I guess just kind of opening up the floor, you know, what do you think needs to change about the church and what, how do we make 
people of all different persuasions kind of feel more accepted. Just to start on that, I would say a majority of active members are very defensive about the idea of the church needing to change. One of the things that Becca said is that the idea that the church is perfect, but the people aren't, how harmful that is. But I think that really does resonate with a lot of members. And a lot of people are very defensive of the idea of the church needing to change anything. So to first speak to the cultural changes, there's a barrage of things that need to be fixed about helping people feel more accepted, including every time that someone says anything about LGBT people, that they consider an opportunity to just say something nice about them and not have to say anything about their beliefs, about their actions. I think people have a really hard time going through a sentence about LGBT people without saying, but I don't agree with their actions and making that the big finale. And it's kind of hurtful, even even for me, who I don't really feel like I'm a strong part of the LGBT community, but I'm hurt by that to to think that every time that I'm mentioned, it's always with the tag that I'm not doing something right. Like, that sounds like an abusive parent relationship or something like that. I think that needs a lot of work. And I say that about the members, but I think that honestly, even though a lot of members listening to this will feel uncomfortable with this, I think our own leaders really need to work on that, including our general leaders. That there's something about this topic that for most people in the church, they feel like they have to say that God does not approve of what they're doing. These things can seem so small too. I think if you're not personally dealing with these issues, like you can be listening to someone who comes across as slightly intolerant and maybe they say, you know, I don't judge them but, you know, I don't accept what they're doing at the very end. And that can seem very small, but I think in some ways, everyone is kind of culpable for how somebody feels, who's a part of that community and the way they feel interacting in these spaces. So anything that people can do, I think to even slightly adjust to allow for that person to feel more open, more safe in that situation, I think is a move towards the good. I feel like this goes kind of back to what Becca said about how she couldn't hang out with anyone who was an LDS just because it would influence her. And I feel like maybe that's a part of it where it's like they don't want to be influenced by something they don't agree with. Well, as I'm sure you can guess by now, we had more material than we were expecting, but it's been so good. We'll have to split this into two episodes, so stay tuned for next week for a discussion of trans and bi people and middleway Mormonism. Thanks so much to our interviewees, and remember to follow us on Twitter at folding underscore clothes. And thanks for listening. <laughs>